Hey, and welcome to the Daryl Johnson Podcast. This is week one of a series in the book of Jonah that Daryl preached through at First Baptist Church in 2012. Daryl begins the series by covering all of Jonah chapter one, and he starts today's message by casting vision for the church to be a community that's following Jesus with God's heart for the city. And really, that's the framing Daryl provides for the book of Jonah as a whole. The book is all about Jonah and therefore us being confronted with God's feeling towards the city, his mercy, his grace, and his patience extended to those who are far from him. And Daryl, moving through chapter one, section by section, shows that there was a dimension of God's heart that Jonah wishes did not exist, and how ultimately in chapter one, on stormy waters, he had to reckon with it. And the truth is, we have to reckon with it as well. Now, I love the way that Daryl concludes the message. He ends by leading the congregation in a prayer that's more than a closing prayer. It's really a prayer that gives space for the Spirit to confront and transform the parts of Jonah that live in all of us. I hope you find it as illuminating and helpful as I did as you lean in. All right, with all that said, here's Daryl. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are a community following Jesus with a heart for the city and beyond. That is how we say who we as a church are in this part of the world. It is our identity and mission statement. It's printed on our order of worship. It's on the first news. It's on the letterhead of the church. We are a community following Jesus with a heart for the city and beyond. All the particulars of any other mission statements evolve from this basic conviction. We are a community, not just individuals, not just an amalgamation of individuals, but an interconnected community birthed by the spirit of God. Centered in a person, in Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, resurrected, ascended to the throne. We are a community following Jesus. A community reading about Jesus, thinking about Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and with him, his Father and his Spirit, praying in Jesus' name, watching and waiting for his glorious return. We are a community following Jesus. Whom else would we want to follow? As the disciple Peter said to Jesus after a number of people had been falling away from following Jesus, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The implication being only you have the words of eternal life because only you are the man who is God and only you are the God who is man. With a heart for the city. We are following Jesus with a heart for the city and beyond. Heart. The word implies not only vision, but feeling. The word implies not only conviction, but emotion. We are a community following Jesus with a heart for the city and beyond. I have been suggesting to our leadership since I was called here three years ago That we need to make a small change in the wording of our identity and mission statement. It's a small change, but it has a huge implication. 
I suggest we need to replace the word a with the pronoun his. That we change it from a a heart for the city to his heart for the city. We are a community following Jesus with his heart for the city, with the God man's heart for the city, with the triune God's heart for the city. Much less fickle than my heart for the city, much more persevering than my heart for the city, much more merciful and compassionate than my heart for the city. Which leads us to the text Andrea read for us a few moments ago. Nowhere else in the Bible is God's heart for the city more clearly revealed than in the Old Testament book of Jonah. As we will see in our four part series of studies in this book, there are many practical uh, themes and, and lessons that we can use in um, as, as first century disciples in our time. But in and through all those themes and lessons, we will constantly meet the living God's feeling for the city. I use the word feeling very intentionally, not just God's vision for the city, not just God's thoughts for the vision, but God's feeling for the city. The book of Jonah is all about God's feelings, God's feelings for what God himself calls the great city. More to the point, the book of Jonah is about the living God seeking to bring his people into his heart, into his feelings for the city. Or better yet, the book of Jonah is all about getting his people to feel for the city what he feels for the city. Which is what Jonah the disciple, Jonah the prophet does not want to feel. Jonah does not want to feel for the city what God feels for the city, especially for the seventh century before Christ city of Nineveh on the banks of the Tigris River in now 21st century Iraq. To Jonah, even though Nineveh is full of all this great culture and all this great technology, for Jonah, Nineveh is a very, very bad city. It's an evil city. It's the leading city of the Assyrian Empire, which in the 8th century before Christ had inflicted great horror on Jonah's people, on the Jews of the northern tribes of Israel. And Jonah does not want to feel all that the God of the Jews feels for the Gentile city of Nineveh. Let me put it this way. Jonah, the disciple, Jonah, the prophet, is called to go where he does not want to go. To do what he does not want to do. To say what he does not want to say. Why does he not want to go and do and say? Because it involves facing a part of God, a dimension dimension of the character of God, he does not want to face. To go where he does not want to go, to do what he does not want to do, to say what he does not want to say, means having to come to terms with something about God he wishes were not true. In running from God's call, or as I should say, in trying to run from God's call, Jonah is not just running from the call. Jonah is running from a God he wishes did not exist. Imagine. Imagine a prophet of the living God 
who up to this point has faithfully served God, who was used by God in a number of crucial turning points in the history of Israel. Imagine this prophet of the living God wanting to run away from God. It is a bit difficult to date this story of Jonah with modern historical precision. We know that the Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was the leading city, destroyed Samaria, northern Israel, in 722 B.C. Now, whether the story of Jonah takes place before that horror or after that horror, we do not know. I think it was before that time, before 722 B.C. Assyria had already destroyed just about every other kingdom in the way, and the prophets of Israel could hear the, tra the trampling of the boots of the soldiers. They could see the writing on the wall. The Assyrian army was known for being ruthless. It was driven by maniac arrogance and gratuitous violence. Think the Assad forces of Syria today. Then came the call. Jonah 1.1. The word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah. Rise and go to Nineveh, the great city. To Nineveh? Just the mention of that name Nineveh ev evoked the images of the brutality of that empire. Jonah wants Nineveh destroyed. Nineveh is the source of destruction in the world. And Jonah wants Nineveh destroyed. Then comes the call. The word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it, for its wickedness has come up to me. Jonah, go and preach to the great city. You are a prophet of the living God. Now go and do what prophets are supposed to do. Go preach to the city. And what is Jonah to preach? One sentence. Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's a word of warning. Indeed, it's a word of pending judgment. Now, why would Jonah not want to go and preach such a word? Well, for one thing, it'd be very risky. Imagine me or you being told to go to our city with such a word. I mean, we'd be laughed at. We'd be jeered at. People would throw rocks at us. But why would Jonah, who wants to see the city destroyed, not go and preach a word of warning? Why? Because the word of warning is a word of grace. It is. A word of warning is a word of grace. Yes. That God would warn anyone is pure grace. The word of pending judgment is a word of grace. You see, God could have destroyed that city as Jonah wanted God to do. Why give a warning? Why warn the city of pending judgment? Because, and this I think is the key to understanding the story of Jonah, because the fact that God even bothers to speak means there's a possibility people will listen. And if people will listen, there is a possibility of repentance. And if people will repent, there is a possibility of people experiencing grace and mercy. As long as God warns, there is the possibility of redemption. And that Jonah does not want to see happen. 
He does not want his and his people's enemy to have the opportunity to hear a word from God that might cause them to repent of their destructive ways and then discover the grace and mercy of God. Jonah knows that when the living God, the creator and redeemer of all things, speaks, something happens. Something always happens. Whenever God speaks, something always happens. And Jonah does not want what could possibly happen to happen. When you see someone walking near or toward a cliff, you you warn them, do you not? Do you not? If you have any feeling for them, if you care about their well-being at all, you warn them, right? And is not that warning an act of grace? You do not want them to fall off the cliff. If you did not care about their well-being, you wouldn't bother speaking up. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's a word of grace because God does not want the city to fall off the cliff. God does not want the city to collapse. All over the world today, cities are collapsing. Even as magnificent high rises rise higher and higher, cities are collapsing from the inside. God does not want to see cities collapse. God will say to Jonah at the end of the story in chapter four, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than one hundred and twenty thousand people who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? God is saying that the city does not know the way of living that leads to life. The city does not know right from wrong. And as a result, this city is heading for the cliff. Go, Jonah, speak to the city. Go, Jonah, and warn the city that it's about to fall off the cliff. The word of warning is a word of grace and truth. But Jonah does not want grace and truth for Nineveh. He does not want that grace and truth for his enemies. And so he runs. He goes in the opposite direction. He disobeys the call to go where he does not want to go, to do what he does not want to do, to say what he does not want to say, because he cannot handle God's feelings for this city. Go. Rise. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out to it, because its wickedness has come up to me. Yes, wickedness is one of the meanings of the Hebrew word that is used in this text. But, as Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart is pointing out to us, there is another and actually more primary meaning of this word, and it's the word trouble. It's troubles have come up to me. Misery, distress, difficulty, harm. God is concerned about the trouble the city is in. Jonah is not being sent to the city to warn it that God is angry and about to destroy it. Jonah is being sent to the city because God could see that the choices the city was making, especially choices about how God fits into the working of a city, were causing the city trouble. The city was experiencing trouble because it was heading in the wrong direction. They did not know right from wrong. God does not want the city to be in trouble. God wants the city to thrive. Go, Jonah. We know that in the second half of the 8th century before Christ, Nineveh 
had a number of military losses. It also suffered a number of diplomatic setbacks on the international scene. It was experiencing a rising famine. There were domestic uprisings. There had been an eclipse of the sun, which some people took as an omen of doom. There was a severe earthquake. And the monarchy was shaky because members of the monarchy's family were acting in ungodly ways behind closed doors. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The message is not, the message is not, in 40 days I will destroy you. The message is, the clock is ticking. The inherent consequences of your choices are catching up with you. You are going to experience the full impact of the inherent misery of your choices. God does not need to destroy cities which ignore him and his ways. Cities which ignore him and his ways eventually implode in on themselves. If cities choose the way of corruption and injustice and immorality and violence, then corruption and immorality and injustice and violence begin to eat away at the city's soul. God does not want the city to be destroyed. The cities will self-destruct. Yet 40 days and the city is going to implode. It's a word of warning and thus it's shot through with grace and mercy. Jonah, get up. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and speak out because its troubles have come up to me. The implication being, I don't want the city to have troubles. Am I making sense? But Jonah. Jonah could not handle God's feelings for the city. So the prophet heads off in the other direction. He is presumably in Jerusalem. When he receives this word, Nineveh is east of Jerusalem. He goes to Joppa, which is west of Jerusalem. And he goes down to get a ship that's heading to Tarshish, which is in Spain. There were a class of ships called the Tarshish ships, not only because they would go to that city, but because it was thought they sailed to the extremes of the trading world. At last Tuesday, when Andrea and I were planning the worship service, she reminded me of how the Jesus storybook tells this part of the story. Jesus goes to the ticket booth. I mean, Jonah goes to the ticket booth and says, one ticket to not Nineveh, please. <laughs> Anywhere but Nineveh. Now, what was Jonah thinking? Did he think he could run from God? We do know that in the ancient Near East, many people worshipped what we could call localized gods. It was thought that the presence and power of a god was localized to the specific geographical territory in which that god was named and worshipped. So was Jonah thinking in these terms that he could flee the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem by going to a place where Yahweh was not yet named and worshipped? I don't think so. For one thing, Yahweh has expressed concern for this city where he is not yet known and worshipped. And for another, Jonah himself will say in verse 9 of the text, he calls Yahweh the God of heaven, the maker of the sea and the dry land. Jonah, Jonah the prophet does not have a localized view of God. None of the prophets of Israel have a localized God. They have a cosmic God. Then what was Jonah thinking? 
the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh came to him in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where he had received other words from the Lord in his life. Jerusalem, therefore, was the unique place for Jonah, the place where you have encountered with God and experienced intimacy with God. Now, many of us experience that we have special places we like to go in times of trouble where we know we're going to meet God and we're going to experience intimacy. God. So Jerusalem was that place for Jonah. Jonah is thinking, I think, that if he just got away from that sacred space, he could get away from the encounter and the intimacy and he wouldn't have to deal with the word of God in any way. And God would choose a different prophet to go to Nineveh. So he runs away. Or, as I should say, he tries to run away. He finds a ship that will take him away from the place of encounter, away from intimacy with God. And as Billy Graham once said, commenting on this part of the Jonah story, if you start running from the Lord, the devil will always have a boat for you and you will always have the money to pay for the fare. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, arise, go to the great city. And Jonah arose to flee from the presence of Yahweh. But it does not work because it cannot work. I mean, where's Jonah going to go? Where are you and I going to go where we do not encounter the living God and where we cannot experience intimacy with God? So God goes after Jonah. God is, as Francis Thompson once called him, the hound of heaven. When we run from God, God runs right after us until he has us hook, line and sinker. Now watch how God goes after Jonah. God begins with natural phenomena. Yahweh hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm. We are going to see God act like this in the rest of the book of Jonah. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The Lord commanded the fish to vomit Jonah up. And the Lord planted a plant and it grew over Jonah. But God appointed a worm and God appointed a scorching east wind. God goes after Jonah in natural phenomena. Or as we say in British Columbia, he goes after Jonah in supernatural, natural phenomena. The Lord hurled a great wind and there was a great storm. God loves Jonah that much. This is not to say that every storm at sea is the work of God, even though insurance companies will label such occurrences act of God. It is to say, though, that some of the storms we experience at sea, some of the storms we experience on land are the work of God. Most of the time, God runs after us in this gentle breeze, but sometimes God will come after us in a raging wind. Bless his name. The storm was so intense that the ship was on the verge of falling into pieces. So the sailors start jettisoning the cargo so that the ship can move swifter and so it can outrun the storm, but to no avail. And where's Jonah during all the storm? He's in the hold of the ship fast asleep. That is how determined he is to run from encounter and intimacy. He keeps running by running into unconsciousness. He's going to find a way to just be unconscious. He sleeps himself into unconsciousness. 
so that he doesn't even have to think about the possibility that this storm might be an act of God. But God keeps after him. This is good news. God will not let us sleep ourselves away from knowing him. God will not let us sleep ourselves away from following him. On board the ship are people of various religious and philosophical backgrounds. And most of them would share the conviction that nature was at the mercy of the gods. And in their mind, this storm was due to a god that was angry. And the only way to ward off the storm is to determine which god was angry and why. So the captain of the ship has everyone wake up and search to see whether they have offended their gods. He orders all of the people to pray to their gods. The captain makes everyone pray, including this stowaway down in the hull of the ship. Why are you sleeping? The captain says to Jonah, get up and call on your God. Might not the world be saying the same thing to the church in our time? You seem to be sleeping through the storm. Do you not see what is happening in the world today? Why are you sleeping? Get up and call on your God. Do you see what God is doing in this story? God is using the religious superstitions of a Gentile sailor to make the Jewish prophet face reality. God does more. God uses another common conviction of the ancient Near East. God works with the concept of the lot when people of that time need to make uh, major decisions on, on, on really crucial matters. They would cast the lot. So the Gentiles sailors want out of this storm. They need to know who offended their God. They cast the lots and the lot falls on Jonah. Was that a coincidence? Or was that the hound of heaven using whatever means that are at his disposal to get Jonah back into reality? Jonah thought he could flee. The storm comes. He thought he could ignore the storm by sleeping in the hole of the ship. The captain, superstitious captain, wakes him up. He thought he could keep quiet. The lot falls on him and he's exposed. God does more. Even though he's exposed, Jonah will still try to ignore reality. So the sailors rightfully ask him a series of questions. Who are you? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your nationality? And then Jonah says, listen, Jonah makes this great statement. I am a Hebrew. And I fear Yahweh. The creator of the sea and the dry land. He does. Jonah fears Yahweh. Jonah fears the God of heaven. Jonah fears the maker of the sea. Jonah fears the maker of the dry land. No, Jonah does not. He does not fear Yahweh. And the sailors, the pagan sailors, hear the contradiction between Jonah's affirmation of faith and his actions. What have you done? They've asked. How could you do this? It's really not a question. It's an exclamation. They could not believe that a person who says they believe in such a God would even think that he could escape from such a God. Do you see what God has done here? He has used the heathen unbeliever to confront Joseph, the prophet, with the absurdity of his actions. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me many times. I remember the first time it happened to me. It was while we were in seminary. 
I was the manager of the apartment building where Sharon and I were living. All the tenants knew we were Christians. All the tenants knew I was studying theology. Theology. One day I was helping the woman who lived in unit number six. I was trying to fix something there. I can't remember what it is right now. But I was grumbling about all these papers I had to write that term. And after some time, she said to me, why are you so anxious? Those of you who know me well know I can get real anxious about all the work I have to do. Why are you so anxious? She says, is not the God you're studying at seminary, the God you keep telling me about, big enough to help you with the papers? Oh, man, felt like crawling in a hole, as I have on other times I've been confronted. God had used that self-avowed atheist to confront this self-avowed believer with the inconsistency between what I said I believed and how he lived. Is God not doing that for the church in North America in our time? He's using the younger generations to confront the established church with our inconsistencies. As never before, never before that I've witnessed, our culture is raising very troubling questions. How could you do this, they say. How can you behave like this in the face of such poverty and injustice in the world and say that you follow Jesus of Nazareth? Read the disturbing book by David Kinnaman, Unchristian, where he lists all the charges that our culture are making against the church in our time. I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, God of heaven, maker of the sea and the dry land. Do you, Jonah? Then why are you on a boat headed in the opposite direction from which this God called you? But Jonah keeps going. And God keeps going after him. God respects Jonah's freedom. That's really important. God respects Jonah's freedom to choose. God wants Jonah to obey. God wants Jonah to discover the joy of being obedient to the call. But he does not want to force Jonah to obey. So God puts Jonah on the horns of a dilemma. It was the French sociologist Jacques Ellul who helped me see this. It's God's master stratagem to get Jonah to feel for the city what God feels. Now now watch this. Jonah and the soldiers know the reason for the storm. Jonah's disobedience. Jonah and the sailors, not the sailors, know the resolution to the crisis. Throw Jonah overboard. Now, as a matter of fact, there is another option, and that is Jonah could simply say, "Okay, I'll go to Nineveh. But he can't. In fact, in chapter four, he says he'd rather die than do that. So Jonah and the soldiers know the reason for the storm. The, The prophet has disobeyed. And they know the resolution for the storm. Throw the prophet overboard. Now watch this. If Jonah tries to save face and keep quiet about his sin, the storm is going to continue and the sailors are going to go into further trouble with Jonah. On the other hand, if Jonah comes clean and confesses his sin, the sailors will throw him overboard. The storm will subside 
and the sailors will be saved from their trouble. What makes this dilemma worse for Jonah is that the sailors row harder to get out of the storm. They do not want Jonah to suffer the consequences for his sin. Imagine that pagan heathens do not want the Jewish prophet to die. So what does Jonah do? He confesses his sin. I know that it's on account of me that the storm has come. He accepts the consequences of his sin. He goes overboard. The sailors' lives are spared, and then they worship the God of Jonah. Do you see what happened in that moment? Who are the sailors? Are they Jews? No. Those sailors aren't Jews. Those sailors are Gentiles. In Jonah's mind, Gentiles are not deserving of the chance to repent and find mercy and grace. But look what happened. The very thing Jonah does not want God to do for Gentiles, Jonah chooses to do for Gentiles. And the very thing Jonah does not want God to do for the great city of Nineveh, Jonah chooses to do for those sailors. Jonah sacrifices himself for those he thought were not worthy of the love of God. Jonah disobeys the call to go where he did not want to go, to do what he did not want to do, to say what he did not want to say, because the going and the doing and the saying involved a dimension of the character of God he did not want to face. In the storm, on the horns of that dilemma, Jonah actually acts out the dimension of the character of God he does not want to face. It's brilliant. It's at that point in the story that God sends the big fish. We'll look at it next week. To come and swallow Jonah. Does he send the fish to punish Jonah? No. Jonah's already punished. He's going down in the water. He sends the fish to rescue Jonah and get Jonah back on the way to Nineveh. In the storm, Jonah experiences the dimension of God's character he wants to see exercised against Nineveh. He experiences God's judgment, but now it's against himself. He suffers the full consequences of his sin. And in the storm, he experiences the dimension of God's character he does not want for Nineveh. He experiences mercy for himself. Jonah should have drowned and God could have got another prophet. But God loves Jonah. God had called Jonah and nothing was going to thwart that call, including Jonah's disobedience. That's how much God loves the cities of our world. Let us pray. Are you running from God in any way? Name the fact. It, it, it is safe. Are you running from God? Name it. Is there something about God you do not like? 
Name it. It, it, it. it is safe. Is there something about God you do not like? Say it to him. What about our city do you dislike and want to see judged? Name it. Who in this city do you want to find? Jesus and his life. Name them. And then, once again, or for the first time, say to the man who is God, to the God who is man, here I am. I'm yours. Help me feel for the city what you feel. Well, thank you for tuning in to today's message with Daryl. Before you go, I want to quickly highlight the important work that our friends at International Justice Mission are doing around the world to end slavery today. In Micah 6, 8, it says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? See, the Bible speaks so clearly about the justice that God longs for and really how the church is the vehicle that he wants to use to bring justice in our world. And especially in this time, the question of what we are doing to respond to the realities of injustice in our own neighborhoods and around the world is an important question for every Jesus follower to consider. International Justice Mission is one of the largest anti-slavery organizations in the world, and they want to help you understand and live out biblical justice. Today, there are more than 40 million people worldwide who are trapped in slavery, and our friends at IJM want to do something about it with your support. So for resources to join the fight for justice, visit ijm.ca slash djp, and there you'll find everything you need to do your part in ending slavery, human trafficking, and violence. That's ijm.ca slash djp.